Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Laura and in each recording I'll be meeting a geographer to discuss their research and where geography has taken them. If you've got questions, ideas for topics or simply want to know more about upcoming podcasts, follow hashtag Ask the Geographer on Twitter for the latest updates. Globalisation is changing our world as we know it. It's transforming economies, societies and the environment. But whilst geographers have long studied its effects in global cities, there's been little research on the concept of a global countryside and the impacts of globalisation on rural spaces. In this podcast, we'll be meeting Professor Michael Wood from Aberystwyth University. We discuss how migration, trade and tourism has shaped the rural landscape in England and Wales. How would you define a rural place? What is a rural area is a more difficult question than um, it initially seems. Um, For a long time, geographers have expended considerable energy on trying to define the essence of what is rural and what is urban and draw boundaries between the two. And it's impossible because rural and urban areas are so interconnected today. Our economy is interconnected, people move back and forth. We all watch the same television and films and so on. And that's why some people would say that the whole world has become urbanised. The problem with that argument is that if you were to be dropped out in an aeroplane into the middle of the countryside or into an inner city, you would instinctively know which was urban and which was rural. And more importantly, there are millions of people who live in rural areas for whom being rural is an important part of their identity. So my answer really is that rural places are places where the people who live there consider them to be rural. But if you then look at the reasons why they think they're rural, there are certain common themes. So rural areas tend to have a lower population density. They tend to be in remoter locations. They tend to have fewer buildings. Um, Often they have um, agriculture land, although that's not necessarily everywhere. They may have forest, they may have wilderness. Usually there is still a presence of primary industries like agriculture or forestry or mining or fishing, but usually today only a small part of the economy. So those things make the experience of living in rural places different to the experience of living in a city, and that's what matters. Are there common misconceptions or imaginations about rurality and what it means to be rural? There are many of those, but one of the most important misconceptions is the idea that rural areas are somehow less connected into the modern world, into the global economy and global society than urban areas are. Now, of course, there's always a um, technology gap between the city and country areas in terms of new technologies being rolled out. We all know that there are rural areas where it's difficult to find a mobile phone signal or the broadband connection is slower. But there are also many rural areas which have an excellent um, phone connection and broadband connection. And there are people in those rural areas who are businesses trading globally. Uh, They are uh, migrants from all over the world. There are people who are chatting with friends around the world on social media. Indeed, actually, some of the most connected people are farmers. 
if you can go to New Zealand, then you can talk to farmers who will start every morning checking the financial markets on the um, on the computers because the movements in exchange rates, for example, affect the prices they get. You can go to someone like Kenya and find farmers who are using smartphones to, again, check markets or to make sales or to transfer money or to learn about agricultural techniques. So the rural areas are not maybe differently connected in some ways, but in many rural areas, they're strongly connected to global trends, as are many towns and cities. What are some of the impacts experienced by rural places as a result of globalisation? And have rural places been perhaps neglected by geographers in their debates around globalisation and its impacts? And as geographers, we have to tend to focus on uh, the global city as being the um, the place in which we examine uh, globalisation. So we examine globalisation through places like New York and London and Tokyo. And in many ways that's obvious because um, the effects of globalisation are very apparent there. These are centres of the global finance industries. Um, they are centres of the global media. They have great melting pots of different people from around the world. But there's been increasingly, I think, a critique in um, geography of that focus on the global city. And arguments that the tendency to do that has an impact in neglecting the experience of globalisation in smaller cities, in cities in the global south, and also in rural areas um, around um, the world. Um, And I think that is beginning to change. People are beginning to recognise that there are uh, effects of globalisation in all of these places, including um, in rural areas. But that the way in which globalisation works, the types of processes that are important, and the experience of this may well be different, say, in the global countryside than they are in the global city. Now, in terms of what the impacts are for rural areas, I perhaps should start by um, defining globalisation. Um, the definition of globalisation, which I like, is one which comes from a book by Manfred Steiger called A Short Introduction to Globalisation. And he defines globalisation as the stretching, the intensification, the acceleration and the multiplication of relations between different places in different parts of the world, alongside the growth of global consciousness. And I think we can see plenty of evidence of those processes in rural areas. So we can see our food supply chains being stretched over longer distances. We can see the acceleration of travel, which helps to fuel global tourism, which helps to fuel global migration. We can see information connections, which mean that we are consuming a common culture together. And that means that, actually, again, our consciousness of the world is growing. So we know about rural places in different parts of the world. And we have a greater consciousness of some of the impacts on those rural locations, such as things um, like conservation and biodiversity. Um, This does not mean, however, that everywhere is becoming the same, that we are seeing some kind of homogenous global countryside emerging. Different rural places are affected by different global processes. Some may be tied more into those global food markets. Some may be um, parts of the global mining industry. Some may be valued for their environmental importance, be key sites of global conservation efforts. Some are attractions to global tourists or migrants. And the ability to 
experience any one of those trends. It's constrained by various structural factors. So it matters what resources you've got on the ground. It matters how good the, the, the agricultural environment is, what the climate is like. It matters where you are located and what the accessibility is like. So these means mean that globalisation is experienced in different places differently. So we don't get an homogenous global countryside, but what we do get is globalisation affecting really every corner of the earth now, both cities and rural areas. Are there particular places or case studies that you focused upon in your research? Yes, in our research in the Global Rural Project, uh, we've tried to take a kind of overview of globalisation that's happening in rural areas around the world um, and to sample different globalisation processes. So we've actually looked at something like 35 different case studies in 13 countries. But to give you just a, a couple of those examples, we have looked um, in Brazil, we've done some work in Brazil about the expansion of agribusiness and particularly the expansion of um, soy cultivation to supply global markets, most notably um, in Brazil, and how that's having an impact in terms of displacing small farmers and indigenous communities, leading to things like deforestation and clearance of, of, um, of Cerrado uh, land as well. We've also looked um, at um, places in New Zealand and Australia, which again are key agricultural markets producing food for global export. We've looked at um, towns in Australia which are centres of global mining industries and producing minerals and coal for the export. We have done research in China where we visited a um, district um, where many people are migrating out of that distance to work as migrant workers, particularly in Japan and Korea, but also in Europe. And we have researched examples in Ireland of small towns which have become the host for large um, immigrant populations and now have um, very large mixed populations in small towns of only about 1,000, 1,500 people. And we've also done research here in Wales uh, where we've tried to explore what we call everyday globalisation. Um, and we've looked particularly at a small town called Newtown where we have tried to examine how globalisation experienced by people there in their everyday lives in the food they eat, um, in the jobs they do, in the, um, you know, the television they watch, um, in um, where they shop, the goods which they buy. So we've tried to get this multidimensional view um, on globalisation in rural areas. So you mentioned there about goods that people buy. Um, thinking more specifically then about trade and economies, can you tell me about how globalisation complicates kind of where products come from and our understandings of commodities being neither urban or rural or local or global and how that impacts in this local area of Newton that you've mentioned? I'll give you the example of milk. Uh, because milk in many ways is perhaps you know, the epitome of a perishable good. We all know milk goes off quickly if you don't put it in the fridge. And therefore, historically, dairy farms used to be located in the edge of cities and dairies were located in the cities themselves because you needed to get the milk from the cows to the people quickly. Over time, new technologies like refrigeration and various other preservation techniques, improvements in transport, have meant we can transport, keep milk fresh longer and transport it over longer distances and therefore sell it over distances. And what's happened is that dairying has in fact become a footloose industry. That dairy farming now happens in the places which are the best environments for it, the most competitive environments for it, and it's producing goods which are being exported around the world. So New Zealand, for example, 
has become a major dairy exporting industry. It sells dairy products to almost every country in the world, including to China. And China is particularly interesting because, historically, Chinese haven't eaten a lot of dairy products. Many of them are lactose intolerance. But um, the westernisation of diet in China has meant popularity for things like coffee balls, for ice cream, and a greater demand for milk, and including for infant formula for feeding babies. The demand for that has produced a demand for imports, and New Zealand has positioned itself as the major supplier of milk powder and milk to China because it's seen as a pure and safe environment um, to produce milk, and it's got that reputation in China. That demand has in turn increased the dairy industry in New Zealand, but there has been a large-scale conversion of farmland from other uses of dairy farming over the last couple of decades. And that's impacted on the local landscape because there are new buildings for, for dairy sheds and there are new irrigation systems for the greater demand for water. And that changes the colour of the landscape from a sort of dusky brown to bright green. Uh, it means that there are demands for new power lines supplying more electricity, uh, for roads and milk tankers. It changes the rural communities because you need greater services like things like vets, but you also need more workers in the dairy farms, which tend to be met by Filipino migrant workers who've come and moved into these rural communities. And there's been an impact on the rural environment because of problems of pollution from slurry and from chemicals going into water um, uh, resources. Now, at the same time, the dairy industry in New Zealand has become more vulnerable to changes in China, in global markets. The price varies, and actually that price for milk powder sold by New Zealand farmers to China actually affects the prices paid to farmers for milk all around the world. One of the more recent developments is that the Chinese taste, that China is starting to produce more its own milk and dairy products. You have dairy farms in China of up to 40,000 cattle on one farm in very intensive farm units, really reared indoors. And that means that they need, um, they aren't raising grass, they need cattle feed, and that's often in the form of alfalfa, which has been imported from uh, California, or soy imported from Brazil. Some of that, some of those dairy farms are starting to produce fresh milk in China. And whereas the, the milk from New Zealand is nicely packaged with nice pictures of green mountains and meadows to show how pure and clean it is, the Chinese fresh milk is, is in packaging which has a timeline showing how quickly it goes from the farm to the supermarket. But that again is now being challenged by imports. I was recently in Tasmania in Australia in a place called Woolnarth, which is again the largest dairy farm in the Southern Hemisphere, and part of the land of the Van Dienen's Land Company, set up by British investors in the 1820s. Three years ago, that was bought by a Chinese investor, and it's bought in order to produce fresh milk to sell in China. And what's now happening is that the cows have been milked here in Tasmania, in Australia. That milk is going to the airport, being put into a plane, flown to China, and it's on supermarket shelves in Beijing and Shanghai and Ningbo within 24 hours. So this is the way in which something like milk has become this global industry. And that has an impact for farmers around the world in terms of the effects on prices. And it has an impact on the rural communities and landscape and environment in the places where that farming industry is happening.
How do you hope your research will support rural societies and economies um, and expand understanding of how globalisation occurs? What we've particularly been trying to do in this work is to look at the nitty-gritty of how does globalisation have an impact in place? Um, so I've been talking about examples like trade. We, we can talk about trade deals. So a trade deal allows New Zealand milk to be sold to China. Well, this needs more than just signing a paper. How does that actually happen in practice? What changes does that require in that rural community? And what change happens, say, when industries relocate or when migration happens? What happens when people move away from a rural community or move to a rural community, either as lifestyle migrants or as migrant workers? So we wanted to understand what is happening at local scale in practice. Now, I think this will help us to understand globalisation because it will give us more ideas about exactly how globalisation works and how it has a difference in different places. I've said before that we're not creating some homogenous society in which everywhere is the same. So what is it that makes the impact of globalisation in one place different to another? And once we can discover that, there is then potentially a benefit to those rural communities themselves. One of the, the things which is sometimes said to me, particularly when I talk to economists, and I say that I'm researching globalisation in the rural areas, and they say things like, oh, it's such a shame. You know, these rural areas are being destroyed by globalisation, and there's nothing they can do about it. And we want to challenge that victimisation of rural communities. We want to say, actually, well, that there are all kinds of constraints, and everywhere's different, and not everywhere can be. You know, a global tourist centre or can be supplying um, corn and grain to global markets. But by understanding how globalisation works in different places, we can understand better what those constraints are. What are the range of opportunities for open to rural communities? And how can decisions made in those communities make a difference? How can there be a promotion of entrepreneurship to create new opportunities for niche products selling to global marketplaces? How can maybe communities use the networks of migrants who've moved away from those areas and are working perhaps in cities in other countries? How can they draw on that experience? How can perhaps they draw them back to those rural communities to invest their money and their experience? So those are the kinds of lessons we want to draw out of our research and which we hope will actually make rural communities more resilient to the impacts of globalisation in the future. So one of the case studies we've been looking at is the town of Newtown in Mid Wales, and we've looked at Newtown really as an ordinary town. It's not somewhere which has had a massive, very visible globalisation impact in terms of a loss of a big industry, or somewhere which attracts lots of migrants and lots of tourists. But what we see in Newtown is how globalisation has impacted that town in everyday life. And partly that's come through the economy, so there are um, some multinational companies who are investing there and they are reporting back to head offices in the United States or in uh, Japan. It has experienced industrial loss in that the textile company Laura Rashley used to be based there and was running a global empire from there at the time, yet all of that has now been uh, relocated to Asia. So it's had to adapt to some of those changes. It's also somewhere where we see globalisation impacting in everyday life. So the arrival of McDonald's and Kentucky Fried Chicken changes people's um, eating habits, as did the early arrival of Indian and Chinese restaurants and takeaways. Um, it's somewhere where the livestock market has been replaced by a Tesco supermarket. And again, that changes people's buying habits. It means they're more likely to buy 
food and products which have been imported from other parts of the world. It's a place in which um, there's not a large amount of migration, but there's a mixture of communities there. There's something like 30 different languages spoken, some of a tongue, by people living in that community. So by looking at um, not just the most obvious impacts of globalisation, but by trying to explore how globalisation works in everyday life, and in doing that in the way which we've been working with the community in our research, so we've been working with local schools, we've been running activities for things like the Women's Institute and asking them to think about the food they were um, eating and using, uh, we get this sense about how globalisation is really intrinsic to anything we do, to our own lives today. And that also reflects upon the sense of place that people have, how they think about their town and the future of that town. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to discover the latest updates on learning resources and events, visit rgs.org forward slash schools or follow us on Twitter at rgs underscore IBG schools for up-to-date developments. If you'd like to find out more about Michael Wood's work, you can visit global-rural.org to access case studies and story maps that explore these global connections.